Welcome back to the Autoblog Podcast. I'm Greg Migliori. We've got a great show for you this week. Uh, so let's jump right in. Lots of things going on in the news world, in the car world, and we've driven some interesting things. Plus, it was the Tokyo Motor Show this week. With that, I'd like to bring in Senior Editor for All Things Consumer, Jeremy Korznewski. What's up? I'm sitting here drinking some coffee, looking at uh, beautiful fall foliage out the window, um, and uh, here to talk about some cars. Same, same. So let's let's jump right in. Uh, just so you guys know, for the news segment, we're going to hit on the UAW story. The Dodge Charger may go ice or stay ice. You wrote an interesting piece on that, and I, I'd like to unpack that with you. Okay. And uh, you know, we'll talk about some other news uh, on the EV front. So first off, let's. Uh, this is breaking news, if you will. We're recording this on uh, Thursday morning. Hopefully, you're listening to this on Friday, the weekend, enjoying, uh, you know, your weekend, if you will, with some autoblog uh, podcast uh, sounds. Uh, and who knows, there may be more deals by the time you're hearing this. But Ford has reached a tentative agreement with the UAW. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, UAW President Sean Fade in an uh, Facebook Live uh, or Facebook address sort of laid out the terms. They got a 25% raise over the cost of the contract. It includes COLA and a few other things the UAW was looking for. Uh, it seems like an unquestioned victory for the union. It also seems like a deal that, you know, frankly, Ford should be able to live with. So, um, you know, for all of our insight on this, best thing to do is head back to the site. Um, it kind of head with it that way, just because like the way this looks right now is Ford workers are returning to work right now. It, you know, very important factories where they make the Super Duty, the Ranger, the the Bronco, things like that. Um, I think a deal with Stellantis and General Motors is is eminent. Let me put it that way. Uh, so uh, rather than dig into it too deeply, I think it just makes sense to say, hey. Follow us on uh, you know on our social channels where any breaking news will get out there, and of course uh, you know we'll have that you know on the site the minute it happens. So uh, yeah. one interesting thing, yeah. Greg, about this, um, I, I'm super pleased that uh, it sounds like there's um, an imminent end uh, to the negotiations and striking, getting workers back working and vehicles being made. Um, I. I read something this morning um, from Hyundai. Um, it was talking about their uh, guidance for the remainder of the year. Um, of course, Hyundai and a lot of the um, import factory or import uh, car companies have um, factories here in the United States where they build vehicles. Um, most of them, in fact, all of them are non-unionized. Um, so Hyundai was asked what they thought the uh, um, the UAWs. A new deal uh, with Ford might mean for them. And they do expect a little bit of the quote unquote rising tides to raise all ships uh, um, to uh, potentially increase pay at their factories as well, despite the fact that they're um, not unionized. So that'll be another little wrinkle to pay attention to moving forward. Um, even the, the, you know, the, the American workers at factories that are not unionized may see a, a little bit of a windfall, um, from the, uh, from the latest UAW deal. So that, that could be interesting too. All right. Sounds good. So let's transition over to some enthusiast news about the Dodge Charger. Uh, you wrote this story. This is kind of a follow-up to a story we had last week, as well as we talked about it on the podcast, because people like to talk about the Charger and the Challenger. Mm -hmm. uh, we sort of hypothesized that uh, given that there's like a transmission tunnel in these uh, uh, body and whites, like chassis that we've been seeing uh, sort of spy photos from the factory floor, 
maybe they're going to keep uh, keep on with an internal combustion engine. Perhaps that Hurricane Straight Six, which I believe would be a twin turbo, and that. Honestly, that sounds pretty good to me. Best mm-hmm. of all worlds. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought, you know, a lot of different rumors were floating out about this. The drive, for what it's worth, uh, they, they kind of said they confirmed it. And, you know, they did get what appeared to be an anonymous source going forward with that. Uh, but I thought you brought some good perspective as somebody who's been around for a long time talking about what, you know, like, this has kind of always probably been in the cards. They just didn't quite say it right off yeah. the top when they rolled out that concept. Right. To kind of maybe take us through what you were going for here. Well, I, okay. So basically, we can establish a couple facts um, that that are conclusive. One, the charger bodies that we saw um, look a whole heck of a lot like the concept did, which is great. Um, they also have a clear transmission tunnel, and they've got some really beefy uh, chassis rails um, that you can see, you know, that are riveted and welded directly into place. Um, clearly, these body and whites uh, have been designed to accept an internal combustion engine. Um, that's a fact. Uh, another fact. It's the STLA large architecture. So what you're seeing, so if, if you're not super familiar with the, with the terms architecture or vehicle platform, what that refers to is all the hard points that make up the metal structure underneath the bodywork. Um, that's, that's what, you know, engineers refer to as a vehicle's platform. The STLA large platform, which the Dodge Charger, Daytona, um, and presumably, you know, most other large vehicles from Stellantis, uh, rides on that platform. They already said years ago that the STA, STLA large platform was being designed to accommodate internal combustion drivetrains in addition to electric powertrains. In other words, seeing these bodies in white that look like Challenger Dayto- or Charger Daytonas uh, that we know will be electrified having a transmission tunnel and being clearly set up to accept an internal combustion drivetrain shouldn't actually be surprising. We should have known that. We should have expected that when we saw the bodies in white. Um, so a lot of the internet hubbub really is unnecessary. Um, you know, D- Dodge, Dodge telegraphed this, that, that this was going to be the case. It was a platform designed for both internal combustion uh, powertrains and electrified powertrains. Um, the, the wrinkle here is a report. Um, it started from the drive um, that a supplier confirmed, a, a, an anonymous supplier source confirmed that, um, that these bodies in white would, ex- you know, were going to accept a internal combustion engine. It would indeed be, as Greg mentioned at the beginning, a form of the Hurricane inline six, most likely with twin turbos, and it'd be connected to an eight-speed automatic transmission, setting power to the rear wheels or optionally all-wheel drive. Um, again, not terribly surprising. Um, we knew from from Dodge's uh, previous um, uh, information uh, publicly stated that that these that these vehicles would be able to accept it. So, so here's the questions that remain unanswered. Um, since Dodge has clearly stated that uh, the Dodge Charger Daytona will be fully electric, will not have an internal combustion engine option, 
how does that coincide? How do you how do you make that work with what the supplier said? The most obvious explanation to that, as far as I'm concerned, and, and Greg, you can chime in here too. The most obvious explanation is that the charger Daytona is going to be fully electric. Will there be versions called Charger, Dodge Charger, or Dodge Charger something that have an internal combustion engine? It seems likely. Um, you know, I, I I mentioned that Dodge has uh, you know a, a great history of names in that in the post that I wrote up um, that they could trot out for for muscle car fans. Um, we've been we've been hearing we've been hearing rumors forever that they're going to make a Barracuda. I mean, how perfect would that be? There'd be a Dodge Charger, there'd be a Dodge Charger Daytona, the electrified pinnacle that you know is going to set drag strips ablaze. What if they had a Dodge Barracuda that, you know, had kind of a similar platform, a similar mission statement, um, but was powered by a inline six engine. And the other thing is Dodge isn't planning on going completely electrified for quite some time. They're going to continue to offer internal combustion engine vehicles. And they're, even though they've got this performance uh, reputation, they also sell a lot of, you know, just normal kind of sort of sporty family cars. No one's expecting them to completely abandon the, you know, the performance oriented consumer that has, that needs to drive a family around. Right. So were we thinking that they're going to come out with nothing but thousand horsepower, all wheel drive, electric drag strip terrors? I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, so clearly they're going to, they're going to use this STLA large platform that the charger Daytona will be based on for numerous different vehicles, probably lots of different names, um, and a lot of different use cases, things all the way down to crossovers will run on this platform. Um, potentially the Dodge stealth that they've been talking about that, you know, could take the place of what we think of as the kind of the Durango slot in the market. That's going to be probably built on this STLA large platform as well. It's It's been built to accept internal combustion engines, but that doesn't mean that the Charger Daytona is going to is going to feature one of those. Um, Dodge has clearly stated that it that it will not. Yeah, I think you do a good job of unpacking it there. I think we're in a situation where, uh, you know, we're, we're only going to see this sort of muscle car family grow, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that's it's going to be a good thing. You brought, you dropped a lot of very cool names there from the Stealth to the uh, Barracuda, which I think would be outstanding. Uh, I bet Ralph Giel, the, uh, you know, Stellantis vice president of design would love to get that one back. Mm -hmm. um, I think yeah, the Magnum, I think, could actually even find a place. You know, remember that was sort of the, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the other sibling that, you know, was first and then first to go. So, I mean, I think it just it makes a lot of sense. I think this allows them to create some really, you know, high performance electric vehicles and also some pretty, you know, uh, boulevard pounding, you know, ice vehicles mm -hmm. as well. And at the end of the day, it's how they look, I think, too, for a lot of Dodge consumers. For sure. For sure. And, and I mean, I hope that they don't abandon the heart of the market, too. Um, could, you know, could they make a, a nice, say... 390, 400, 420 horsepower um, inline six that they can sell for a reasonable amount of money um, and, and, you know, kind of create a, a four-door charger platform because everyone's expecting there to be two-door and four-door vehicles. Two-doors sell 
in, you know, very small numbers compared to their uh, four-door siblings. The Charger outsells the Challenger and it always has. Um, so, you know, we're, we're certainly not expecting them to just say like, well, we're turning ourselves into a total halo brand. We're going to do nothing but demons and Daytonas. That's not going to happen. Um, so I don't, I don't know exactly what all the hubbub is. Um, people are just like drawing the conclusion that the, you know, that the Dodge is lying, um, or has changed its mind. I don't think that's the case. Um, the pictures really just confirm what they've already told us that, you know, that there, there's going to be this Dodge Charger Daytona. It's going to look really cool. It's going to be fully electric. It's going to be built on a platform that will be shared across many different model lines. And some of those will be powered by internal combustion engines. Um, so yeah. really it's more of a confirmation than it is like a revelation. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think it's also a lot of people, when you saw that Daytona concept over a year ago at this point, it Dodge did pretty much say we're going electric, but they also didn't exactly, they, they, there's some things that were unspoken. Mm -hmm. They didn't say they weren't going to have like a straight six or a V8 or whatever. They just said, we're going electric. Mm -hmm. And then everybody has been jumping to conclusions, which, I mean, this is one of the most popular enthusiast cars, the yeah. Charger and the Challenger. Of course, people are going to want to know what's up. So uh, I think it could be a fun time, perhaps even more fun for people like me who enjoy driving the Charger or the Challenger. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the Barracuda. I hope so. I mean, there's there's a lot of name recognition being left off the table by not having a Barracuda. Yeah. Like it just seems so obvious that there that there'd be a Barracuda. I I think you know they're they're calling this Charger Daytona. Um, that's a that's a two door, obviously enthusiast oriented vehicle. Um, where where the Cuda slash Barracuda could fit in, I don't know. Um, Daytona certainly seems like it's going to be the, the range topper. Um, but you know, could there be a charger Cuda or something like that? That is a different package that, you know, maybe has, maybe is the one that's got the internal combustion engine. I don't know. Um, I'd be shocked. I don't, I don't know. I'm shocked that they haven't brought that name back out yeah. more than, more than anything else. So, um, here's hoping that, uh, that it comes out and it's something really cool. Like. 15 years ago at Auto Week, I wrote a story about the Barracuda trademark uh, being trademarked, if you mm -hmm. will. Um, mm -hmm. So it's been, this is a long time people have been wondering about it. So. I mean, isn't it such a cool name? Like, it is. Yeah. I also don't know how they don't have a Roadrunner. I mean, how, well, how does... Yeah. I mean, I, I know the, these are, we're talking about Plymouth models, but Plymouth doesn't exist anymore. You know, they've been rolled up into, you know, into Dodge. Um and it, you know, it is what it is. Um, I, I really hope that, that some of these, I mean, they, Demon, they pulled that out. Dart, they pulled that out. Magnum, they pulled that out. They'd had an Aspen even, which is a name yeah. from history, you know, like those, those names have a lot more cachet to them than like Intrepid and Neon. So, yes. you know, they're not going to, they're not going to trot those things back out. Here's hoping they kind of dip into their path because Dodge is good at that. It, it kind of, um, you know parlaying their past successes into future successes. So we'll see how it goes. All right. Sounds good. Uh, let's transition things over to uh, Honda announced at the Tokyo Motor Show, which we'll get to that in just a minute here, uh, that they were basically, they and General Motors had agreed to end their agreement to jointly try to produce uh, more affordable EVs. Uh, I think this is interesting that 
Uh, Honda sort of was the one to bring it up. I, I, GM didn't really say anything about it either way until after the fact. Um, from what I understand, the Honda GM, uh, you know, like collaboration produced like one crossover at this point. And then it sounds like they were better off going their own way, which frankly, I was always confused why they did it that way in the first place. I always thought GM was probably giving up more than they really should have been, like giving up actual proprietary Altium-based technology to let Honda Motor Co. make a crossover that would ostensibly compete with them. I understand the re the rationale of trying to like, you know, you know, spread out the costs, the development costs over time, but it just seemed like, what are you really getting out of this, you know? So it, the fact that they're going to maybe go separate ways in this uh, isn't a surprise to me. It also, I think, um, speaks to the fact that Honda and Toyota in particular, but also General Motors have been kind of it seems like they're slightly pulling back a little bit from EVs, not for production plans or anything like that, but they're being a little more cautious about just how bullish they were about it. Like if you look back two, three years ago, I mean, how often did we got like daily press releases on who's going to be all electric by 2025, 2030, 2040. I don't think people are saying that as much. And I don't really know what that, you know, portends for the future, but um, you know, in October, S&P says BEVs were about 7.5% of the US market. That was up, I think, 47% from a year ago. So it is trending in that direction. But I'm also wondering if companies perhaps think they have more time to get there uh, and are willing to maybe take that time. I don't know. What, what did you make of this announcement? Um, I mean, you touched on a lot of points that are that are interesting here. For, for one, um, there was there was talk that um, that GM had to revise some of its plans, um, j just because you know with with the strike going on, um, with losing out on a lot. Because the the underlying thing here is that right now, gasoline vehicles and the profits for them are are what is allowing the car companies to invest research and development money um, into their electrified futures. Um, when that stops coming in and you don't know when it's going to end, you start making decisions um, to save money. You know, it's the same thing that people do when when their household income goes down. What do they do when when they're like, oh, gosh, we're not going to have as much money coming in as we thought we did. What are we going to do? We're going to cancel Netflix. We're going to cancel Apple Plus, whatever. Um, so I think that probably is some of why this is happening. Um, but also, you alluded, Greg, to um, to GM giving up a lot. Um, what they were giving up was in exchange for um, you know spreading out those research and development costs. Um, now General Motors is going to have to um, foot the entire bill, whatever Honda hasn't given them up to this point. They're going to have to foot the entire bill for the development of low cost vehicles. Um, and oddly enough, they just announced, you know, or, or earlier this year, they just stopped producing the very low cost electric vehicle, the Bolt, which by all measures was was good. Um, it was a, a vehicle that people liked. Um, and it actually sold relatively well too. Um, but they, they have to do a new platform with their Altium technology so they can spread those costs around. And eventually, you know, half a decade from now, recoup a lot of the costs that they are um, accruing right now. So 
Um, interesting timing on it. Um, interesting that Honda was the one uh, to announce the change, um, considering that General Motors was doing the majority of the uh, development work on it. Um, but, you know, this is, it, it leads me to believe that it wasn't super far along anyway. Um, I don't think everyone would be content to just kind of walk away if a great deal of the engineering and dollars had already changed hands. Um, so probably they, they didn't get all that far and they, they probably, you know, saw this as a good opportunity to, you know, before it got too far and before they, the option to walk away from was taken away from it, go ahead and choose to walk away from it now. Um, as far as the broader perspective on electric vehicles, we're going to talk about this a little bit, um, later in the podcast with Mercedes Benz, I think, um, I think what we're seeing is a, a writing of, um, a writing of expectations and how quickly consumers are going to adapt to an electric future. Um, those of us who own electric cars, I own one. Um, those of us who own them already know that the transition is not nearly as difficult as people think it is. Um, once people park an electric car in their driveway and figure out that, oh my gosh, I wake up every morning and it's fully charged. Um, and if I take a road trip, you know, I just going to change my route a little bit. And, you know, instead of taking, you know, this direct route over there, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to add 30 minutes to my trip because I'm going to divert here and charge for 20 minutes and keep going. Um, it's really not the big deal that a lot of people think it is on an ownership level that leaves those who are against electric vehicles for personal reasons um, that don't have to do with the the ownership um and you know i'm i'm not telling anybody you know what they what they should or shouldn't do i own a gas powered suv in addition to my electric car um there's some people who are just not ready to make the switch um whether it's for practical purposes or whether it's for their own personal opinions um and i don't think you know, I don't I don't think we're going to transition to fully electric and in mainstream um, segments as quickly as the car companies were were hoping to do that. Um, so not super surprising to me that that this that this happened. Um, I mean, I guess it, it's surprising on one hand, because, you know, you think that car companies want to spread these development costs out as much as they can and partnering with an, you know, another huge brand with deep pockets, you know, Honda and General Motors, that does make sense. So it's surprising in that way, not terribly surprising in that, um, you know, they're, they're kind of recasting their, um, their formulas moving forward. Um, because, you know, some people just are not ready to make that switch. All right. Let's uh, let's transition over to the Tokyo Mobility Show, as it's called this year. Lots of EVs, some hybrids too, uh, just a wide range of things. Perhaps the most overtly sports car themed show I have covered in quite some time. Very yeah. cool. Um, I hope you've you know if you're listening, you've been following Joel Stocksdale, John Snyder. They were on the ground there. They are on the ground there. Uh, they seem to have an absolutely great time. They did an incredible job there. Uh, and this is, to me, I think the most impress impressive auto show I've seen in several years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, the every single, uh, you know, of the Japanese domestic manufacturers showed up and showed up with concepts, with ideas, with CEOs. I mean, 
Like they like they have the heads of a company there. You didn't see this at the Detroit Auto Show. Like Jim Farley and Mary Barra and Carlos Tavares were nowhere to be seen at the Detroit Auto Show. But here you had the major sort of you know uh, CEOs talking about cars, people seeing breathtaking concepts. I think it may help that it's in every other year show. So mm-hmm. you know this is kind of you know it's now or never. But. Um, I don't know. I thought it was a very cool show. I mean, mm-hmm. the thing I that really struck out to me, I, my guess is you probably liked it too, was the Mazda Iconic. Uh, what a great name, right? The Iconic yeah. SP mm-hmm. RX-7. Uh, had a rotary vibe, beautiful styling. Uh, it kind of took me back to the last time I drove an RX-8. Uh, this this is, you know, we're talking about Dodge making different sports cars. Uh, how about Mazda? Yeah, totally. It Honestly, you know, we haven't cast our votes for, or I haven't cast my votes yet for the uh, Tokyo Auto Show. Yeah, but this this Mazda is kind of leading the charge for me. It's going yeah. to get it's going to get some votes from me, um, and it it actually is a a twin twin rotor rotary um, with a, uh, a hybrid uh, component to it as well. Um, they they're saying three hundred and sixty four horsepower, um, which is awesome. Uh, 3,197 pound weight, uh, which leads us a very favorable, um, power to weight ratio. Uh, so man, super, super cool concept. Love it. All right. Any, uh, what stood out to you? Um, there's, man, there was so much, so much. Um, the Honda Prelude is cool. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who grew up driving Hondas. Um, I, I owned an RX eight and loved it. So the, you know, the Honda, the, excuse me, the Mazda appeals a little bit more to my own personal heartstrings than the prelude. Um, but the prelude is, is another cool one. Um, and it actually looks like something, um, very production, um, very production ready. Um, so hopefully that, that leads to something that is, you know, kind of sort of similar. Um, I do get distinct Toyota vibes from the, uh, from the fascia of the, you know, the front kind of front end of the prelude. That'll be interesting to see how that translates into production in the future. Um, but love that. Um, the Lexuses look crazy to me. Um, they're all angular and, you know, like I'm, I'm looking at the LFZC and it kind of looks like someone took a Jaguar I-Pace, um, sent it through a paper shredder and then taped it back together. Um, but they're saying that is going to preview a production vehicle. So hopefully they tone down some of that origami look. Um, not that Lexus doesn't, not that Lexus likes to tone down its styling. Um, but that'll be interesting to see, uh, as it moves forward. But I think to me, the craziest thing that I've seen in pictures from the show is the Nissan Hyperforce. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is just, just crazy looking. Um, it, it looks like a, you know, it looks like an early video game rendering of a Pikes Peak time attack racer to me. Like it's got this crazy, crazy front end on it that like sticks way out, like almost like a samurai or an anime like face mask or something like that. Um, it's got these crazy um, you know, wing doors that go up, um, wings all over the place, angles all over the place. Um, I mean, if, if I'm, if it sounds like I'm negative on it, I mean the exact opposite. It's, it's all of those things in the coolest way possible. Um, and the interiors 
ridiculous too with all the um the different lighting that it's got um for its modes it goes from um just like in your face blue lighting to like super sinister red lighting when you go into the uh um, performance modes um so that that really stood out to me as well yeah that one i i think it's kind of wild some of the gtr vibes they were trying to sort of you know bring back um mm -hmm. it's you know i don't know it, i love it when you get crazy concepts so yeah. to me more power to them i thought that was cool uh, the Land Cruiser SE, all electric, it looked kind of like a like a really sleek, like felt refrigerator, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and that one, I was a little disappointed. When I saw like Land Cruiser, I'm like, yeah. Then I looked at it, I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. Kind of looks like a Defender warmed over. Yeah. And not in a good way, because I generally like the Defender. But mm -hmm. I don't know. That was, I wouldn't say it's a miss, but it wasn't my favorite thing. Um, yeah. No, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's oddly toned down for yeah. a, a concept. Um, the did you see the EPU? Um, I don't know. If yeah. The, do they say EPU or do they say EPU? I have no idea. Um, Who but knows? The, the the small like you know midsize electric or 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 small scale electric truck. Yeah, that um, was a sleeper. I think that one looks way cooler to me than the electric yeah. Land Cruiser does. Like it's it's got like kind of angular lines, but not boring. You know the Land Cruiser, um, the, the electric Land Cruiser concept is a little bit boring. This um, this EPU um, is is actually interesting. Um, it's you know got these kind of bulging fenders and this kind of like um, bulldog or pug face nose. Um, that's that was pretty cool. I like that. Um, a, kind of a, a sleeper for me was the uh, um, Mitsubishi DX concept. Did you look at that yeah. one? Yeah, that was different. Yeah, I, like from the outside, it just looks like a Jawa big, you know, Star Wars sand mover. But from the inside, I think it's super cool. Um, I love the uh, open front end. It's kind of got, um, it's kind of got a little bit of a, um, a forward control look to it, where the passengers aren't actually sitting at the very front of the the vehicle. They are behind the front wheels. Um, however when you get inside, you see that it's, it's all open to the outside. Um, be, uh, well, I'm through windows, not open to the outside, but it's all, you know, through, uh, transparent panels to see outside. Um, and the, uh, steering wheel actually attaches, it, it comes from the side of the door, um, not the front of the vehicle to, to leave as much open space as possible. Um, how cool would it be to see something like that? You know, actually, I mean, obviously it wouldn't be this, this forward, um, this, uh, this crazy of a take on it. Um, but if it really does preview something like they're saying, uh, poten potential, the, uh, potentially the next, um, uh, Delica van, um, I really, I really hope to see something like that, um, make its way into actual roads, not us roads, sadly, but you know, even if it's Japan and other markets, that'd be cool to see. Yeah, that was pretty quirky. I like that one too. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's the Tokyo Motor Show. Uh, by the time you hear this, uh, our editor's picks should be up. Lots to choose from this year. Uh, yeah, give Joel and John a follow on Twitter and X and whatever it's called these days. And <laughs> let's talk about what we've been driving. You uh, spent some time in the Sienna long-term, uh, long-termer. Uh, you know, it's it's bounced around from Byron to you. I was in it until like literally like three weeks ago. I was in it for a very long time, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe this is your first time in it you took it up north uh what did you think about it 
Um, it's a great, it's a great vehicle for road tripping. Um, super spacious inside. It's a minivan. Um, sliding doors on both sides. Um, I mean, just the utility aspect can't be beat. Um, you know, even as a suburban owner, um, I'd say that it's so much easier to take a minivan um, on a big trip. So that's obviously a standout. Um, the other standout is the uh, fuel mileage. Um, I never got less than 31 miles per gallon out of the thing. Um, and I don't even know how I know that some of our drivers did get less than less than 30. I don't know how they did it because um, I mean, I wasn't driving slow. Um, I had, you know, I, I packed it full of cargo and people and was driving 80 miles an hour down the expressway half the time and, um, in around in the cities and it was chilly. So I had the engine running, the heat going, like I, I got great gas mileage out of it considering the way that I drove, um, and, and what I was doing with it. Um, demerits that efficiency comes at the cost of performance. It is real slow. Um, and it's not just that it's really slow. It's droney. Um, when you're, you know, you, you, especially when you got it packed, like I did, um, getting up to speed on the highway is like borderline irritating. Um, cause it's like, there's not a lot of power there. And when you do get your foot into it to, um, get the acceleration that you're looking for, you know, you, you just, you hear the, the engine hit its, um, hit its power peak and just stay there, um, in a not in a good way. Um, honestly though, driven and, and, you know, taking it for what it is, it would be hard to choose anything else. If I were buying a minivan, um, you know, just a, a plug-in Pacifica would, you know, also be super interesting. Um, if you did the majority of your driving around town, but using it as a road trip vehicle, um, I don't know how you choose something other than than the Sienna. It's just so practical, so useful, so efficient. Um, it's I mean, it's, it's the most efficient way of transporting, um, you know, a, a small family and their stuff. Um, so the other demerit is it sits so low to the ground. Um, and I think that it's it, that that helps it have decent driving dynamics. Um, it doesn't drive like a minivan. It drives like a, you know, it drives like a family sedan, um, which I mean, in a very positive way, it's not top heavy at all. Um, I think a lot of its weight is it, its center of gravity has got to be really low. Um, and one of the ways you do that is by lowering the entire vehicle. Um, but even just driving on, on like rutted roads, um, you hear like, you know, every twig that you drive over, um, if there's like some tall grass, on a, on a dirt lane, you know, two lane road, dirt, dirt, um, road, you hear everything scuffing up against the bottom of the car. Um, and, uh, I unfortunately, um, had to drive over a deer that had been hit in front of me Oof. and that made solid contact with the, um, <laughs> with the bottom of the car. Um, it's just, again, because it sits so low and the reasons for that are increased efficiency, um, and better driving dynamics. So, in the same way that it's difficult to throw stones at the powertrain for being um, underpowered when you look at its efficiency, it's hard to be angry about that super minimal ground clearance when you're getting the benefit of really good driving dynamics um, out of it and a low center of gravity. So, you know, it's it's like 
it is what it is. You know, I, I hate using that term. It is what it yeah. is because what does that even mean? Um, but you know, with, with one positive comes the corresponding negative. Um, and, uh, I, I would absolutely consider buying a, um, a Sienna hybrid all wheel drive like that one, um, for a people mover. If I had kids, which I don't, um, but if I did, that would be very high in my list of, of vehicles to consider, um, consider putting my own money down on. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, as somebody who's part of sort of the minivan set, you see a lot of Siennas, especially mm -hmm. the hybrids, because it's... Well, they're all hybrids the, now. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Very good point. Um, you see a lot of, you know, Siennas. You see a lot of Pacificas around mm -hmm. here in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of the Honda Odyssey. You see a few Kia Carnivals, mm -hmm. not quite as many. Although I think, frankly, I think that might be the best looking one in the whole segment. Agreed. Uh, so, I yeah, didn't, I mean... I didn't touch on style, Greg, because, like, it's... As, as we always say, anytime we touch on style, it's very subjective, but I, I don't like the way the Sienna looks. Honestly. Yeah, it's pretty boring. It's, 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 it's boring, and the parts that are designed to stand out stand out in a bad way to me. Like, fair, it, fair. It's got like a fishy face, which a lot of, I think, yeah. you know, a lot of Toyotas and Lexuses have a little bit of a fishy face. And I don't really like the, um, the sculpting down the side either. Um, but, you know, like, if, for 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 the purposes of moving people around, I don't get why you'd buy a Carnival or an Odyssey and not the Sienna. You know, like it just makes more sense with its yeah. with its hybrid uh, hybrid powertrain and available all wheel drive. Like the the only the only thing that you know that 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 would dissuade you is um, if you really hate the sound of of the powertrain when you're when you're driving because you know, it's not great. Yeah. I think for me, the other two that like the two that sort of separate themselves from the herd are the Sienna and then the Pacifica. Yeah. Uh, Cause you can get that plug-in hybrid. And if you right. drive say 30 ish miles, you probably don't need to use a lot of gas in that thing. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we had a long termer three, four years ago. Everybody really liked it. I like mm -hmm. the styling a little bit better. I like the interior a little bit better. Um, you know, there's a lot to like, but it, it does also depend on your driving style. You totally, know, if you totally. if you don't want to have home chargers or use the infrastructure, which I don't think the Pacifica has any sort of like quick charging capability, you, I don't think so. you know, the, the Sienna is just almost like it's an easier choice. It is. Yeah. If, if you're being, you know, if I'm being picky about it, um, it really needs Toyota's latest infotainment system too. Yeah. Um, the, the one that it's got is like, you know, it, you don't realize how behind the times it is if you yeah. don't drive a lot of other cars. But since we drive a lot of other cars, we yeah. instantly see like the buttons are all over the place. The it's like half button, half touch screen, super low res. Like even the backup camera, when I was backing out of some of the driveways, I was like squinting to try to like clear my vision. It's not my vision. It's just low res. Um, so yeah. That, that really needs an update. I'm sure it'll get the latest infotainment in the next update. If it had the latest infotainment and twice the sound deadening um, in the engine compartment that it currently has, it would be darn near perfect. Yeah, the navigation in the uh, Sienna is not great. 
And I drove it a lot uh, on some pretty long road trips, like all the way from Michigan to the Gulf of Mexico, from Metro Detroit all the way to the UP. It seemed like it was always adding time, getting confused. I mean, just anecdotally, it was a real pain. Like, I stopped using Toyota's navigation and, and, and used my Google Maps instead. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, just vastly superior. The, I, it, I'll tell you exactly where it happened. It, it happened about 15 minutes into the trip where Toyota sent me on a wild goose chase to try to get on the highway um, mm -hmm. because there was a road closed, the, the on-ramp, yeah. and it could not figure out how to get me on yep. the highway past that. And I, I fired up Google Maps, and it immediately you know, was like, oh, this avoids a uh, closed on-ramp. And I'm like, oh, perfect. Um, so I tried it a couple other times past then. It always gave me different directions than Google did, and Google's were always superior. So I just stopped using it. All right. So we'll just close out the reviews here with a few thoughts on the Subaru Ascent Onyx, uh, which is uh, Subaru's like large three-row crossover. It starts at uh, a little bit over $35,000, so you get a lot of SUV for your money. Uh, Onyx uh, is pretty nice. It gives you like captain's chairs. Uh, this one had like green stitching, uh, which I thought kind of dressed up the uh, uh, sort of Subaru interiors, which can be a bit dull. They're not always, um, not always, but they can be. You get 20 inch wheels on the Onyx as well. Um, so it looked pretty good. Uh, you know, all wheel drive, 260 uh, horsepower, four cylinder and um, the CVT. So pretty much what you would expect. Uh, I put a ton of stuff in it. You know, soccer practice, grocery store, all the things you would expect. Um, it definitely has more of that SUV vibe. You know, try to contrast it with the Sienna that you mentioned. That's like driving a car for sure. You know, along with Pacifica, which has a very low to the road stance, low center of gravity. This is a little more upright. Um, but, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's my favorite in the segment at all. Uh, and that's not even, uh, you know, a knock against it. It just, to me, it, it's, it's tough to separate it from the herd. Unless you're like, you know, a diehard Subaru fan, like just I feel like there's other options out there that you might get some more for, more stuff for. You might get a little more capability. It's just it was okay. It, it didn't blow my mind. Uh, you know, I was looking at some of our competitors. Uh, a wide variety of them don't particularly rank it anywhere near the top of the segment. So I think I'm not totally off you know, you know, going crazy here. Um, you know, I would honestly look at like a Palisade or a, a Telluride ahead of this um, Honda Pilot. So, uh, and frankly, it is fairly large. You know, maybe even think body on frame, like Chevy Tahoe or something. So, uh, have you driven the Ascent? Lately? I have. Yeah, I have driven. Um, I, I I was on the um, the initial launch. Um, which I don't, I don't know, four or five years ago, mm -hmm. um, in the very first ascent. Um, and then when they, when they did the, um, uh, refresh on it, um, I've driven one since the refresh as well. Um, I like the ascent it, it is, I mean, this is kind of, you know, st a stupid way of putting it. And people say this stuff all the time. It's another one of those like things that people say it's, but to describe it as the Subaru of seven passenger SUVs, I can't think of a better way to describe it than that. Like, um, if you're a Subaru person, this is going to feel super comfortable to you. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's like a Forester, but bigger. Yeah. Um, and I don't, again, I don't mean that in a negative way. I like Subaru. I like Subarus yeah. and I like Me the too. Ascent. Um, 
the cost of the Onyx Edition, it's expensive, isn't it? Yeah, it uh, you get up into the 40s. So a lot mm-hmm. of the value that you're getting from, you know, an ascent, which I think starting at like the like 35, I think it's yeah. really a pretty good deal. You get a lot of, you know, crossover for that kind of money. Um, you know, how much do you like some of these like accents, badging and stitching? Mm-hmm. I like yeah. them. I don't know if I want to pay that much more for them. Yeah, because a premium, you can get a premium uh, for 36 if you get the bench seat in the middle. Um, oh, 30, it's more like 37. Um, it's more expensive if you get the the captain's chairs. Um, not quite a thousand dollars more expensive, I think. Um, that is a good deal. You get a lot for your money at that at that price. Stepping up to the Onyx that gives you you know some of the cool stitching, some of the the trim features that they they are cool. Are they worth it? Um, at you know forty five, forty six, forty seven thousand dollars. Um, when you know for more than $5,000 less, you can get all the things that you want without, you know, without those little extras. Um, so that'd be my only thing. Is it a little bit overpriced for what you're getting? Um, but yeah, I like it. All right. So let's just close things out with a fall beer update. Steven writes, up in the Pacific Northwest, fall beers equals fresh hops. You lived in the Pacific Northwest for quite some time. Uh so yeah, that's I think that's a different take on the mm-hmm. vibe, the genre, but I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also continues with, he's from the Midwest originally, so more used to like Oktoberfest-style beers. Uh, so this kind of was a surprise for him. Uh, little did he know, the vast majority of hops grown for craft beer are in that region, the Pacific Northwest. So if you drink fresh, uh, it's, you know, definitely uh, the fall is the season to do it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, hey, thanks for writing in there, Stephen, and sharing your take. Uh, I might try a hoppy beer here at some point this month. Uh, just trying to clear my nose out a little bit before I dive back into some, you know, heavier booze. But uh, yeah, I don't know, IPA or something like that might be kind of fun. Yeah. What do you think? I, um, in my refrigerator right now, if you were to open it, um, you'd find a mixture of. Uh, hoppy beers from pale ales to um, IPAs. I I got a bunch of Rheingeist right now. Um, their their Vision Pale I really like a lot. Um, they have a a Kiwi IPA which I'd never um, and by Kiwi I mean New Zealand, not uh, not Kiwi fruit. Um, really enjoying that. Um, I, I don't know if that's a limited edition or something that they're um, producing regularly, um, but you'll also find several. Um, several ambers and Oktoberfest beers. Um, oddly enough, Oktoberfest happens in September, um, not October. So we're actually well past um, Oktoberfest season, uh, despite the fact that we're recording this in October. Um, so a lot of the uh, the freshest Oktoberfest beers are, are already sold out near me, um, but I can find a few here and there. Uh, I really enjoyed the Great Lakes Oktoberfest. Yeah, um, it's a good one. Yeah. Great Lakes out of uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, their Oktoberfest was especially good. Um, real malty um, and uh, kind of didn't have that traditional German Martzen or Oktoberfest taste. Um, it was it was a bit maltier, a bit darker, a little more roasted than that. Um, and and actually really appreciated that when the uh, when the weather started to turn. So uh, that's what you'll find in my fridge right now. A mix of uh, as as our Pacific Northwesterner states. Um, a mix of some uh, fresh hoppy beers and uh, some more Midwestern style autumn autumn amber beers. 
All right. I would recommend it on a male. I think that's by shorts. Uh, and also we're going to get to that point where amber ale beers get a little more robust as we mm-hmm. sort of the calendar flips to November. And uh, yeah, those are my two, two choices. And that's yeah, all the time. Oh, I was just going to say, I'll throw one other thing into the mix. Yeah. ESBs. Extra special oh, bitters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they really start hitting home around fall time for me. So. I'm trying to think, is it Red Hook? Is that the one I'm thinking Red Hook of? does an ESB. Yeah, yeah, that's a good yeah. one. One of the local breweries here in the town I live in does a real good ESB that I like. Yeah, that's a really good point. I kind of forgot about them. Uh, sort of an underplayed genre. There you go. All right. So now that's all the time we have. Thanks for the, the ESB uh, mention. I little value add there in the closing seconds. If you enjoy the show, that's five stars on, pod, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your Spend My Monies. That's podcast at autoblog.com. Shout out to our producer, Eric Meyer, for making us sound good every week. Be safe out there, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody.